Good morning. Welcome to Southland City Church. My name is Jason. Uh, we're honored that you're here. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Yeah, I don't know if you like saw that coming or not, but it's here. Uh, it's a sacred season for the church, for followers of Jesus, uh, to spend this time uh, adopting a kind of vigilance, um, looking and waiting and hoping for God, and looking for God in places that might be unexpected. And so we'll practice that together over the next few weeks. Uh, lots of ways that we'll do that. I'll tell you about that in a minute. <clears throat> we do want to call out, um, there's a lot of new faces here. Uh, we're especially honored that you might have stepped into a new space. And I don't know if you felt safe doing that or uncertain doing that, but you're here and that's incredible. Uh, if there's ways that you want to get to know our community or feel out whether this is a place that could be home for you, I hope that you'll talk to me or anybody else on the team after the gathering. You can always email info at southlandcitychurch.com. Uh, over and over again, I find people have questions, but they don't ask them. And it's like, just ask. We would love to talk. So reach out and we'd love to help you uh, figure out if this is a place for you. But we're honored that you're here. Uh, lots of good stuff going on as we follow Jesus in this season. And some of that involves the calendar. So let me tell you about our life together in this season. By the way, everything I'm about to to tell you, we've got printed on these handy dandy little cards. You can grab one on your way out and put it on the refrigerator or wherever else you and your family have headquarters to manage all the logistics. Uh, but let's talk about the calendar. Uh, first of all, as we move through Advent, coming up on December 11th, two Sundays from today is the Kids Sing Sunday. And so the children from Kids Ministry are going to be up here leading us in song. It is the cutest Sunday of the year. Uh, that's often a Sunday when family are excited to come along and celebrate those kids and we get to uh, cheer for them. So that's uh, two weeks from today. Uh, then let's talk about Christmas Eve coming up on December 24th. Uh, we're going to have gatherings. I'll put it on the screen for you at 4 p.m. and 11 p.m. These are candlelight Christmas Eve gatherings. The gathering's the same at 4 and 11. The only difference is that we'll offer nursery at 4 and no nursery at 11. We love having kids in the gathering. There are candles in the gathering. That's for you to deal with if you have kids. Uh, but that's also a very, very sacred time for us. When we get through Christmas Eve, then we're going to uh, try to honor one of our values as a community. We have a mantra, which is fields, not factories. It's illustrated over there with the heart, uh, with the field inside and the tree growing. And one of the things that we say about fields, not factories, is that our life with God and one another doesn't work the way like the industrial revolution works. Like we need seasons of rest and we need to go dark sometimes and let things lie fallow. We, we just were not meant to create output 24 7, 365. And so we'll say that to one another about our individual lives, but we also want to honor that in our communal life. So after we get through Christmas Eve, uh, our life together as a community is going to rest for a moment. And that way, volunteers and staff and everybody who gives their heart and their energy to this can take a break. And so that means that uh, we'll have a couple of Sundays with no gatherings. So on Christmas morning, the 25th, we will not be gathering here. And then again on New Year's Day, January 1st, we're also not gathering uh, in any kind of formal way as a community. Then on January 8th, we're going to get back to our life together, but we're not going to do it here. We thought, let's get the new year kicked off with some brunch tables. Yeah, so on Sunday, January 8th, you'll hear more about this in the next few weeks, we're going to throw one-day, one-off uh, brunch tables all over the region. And that could be a brunch table hosted in your home if you want to put your brunch game on. Or it could be that you reserve a table at your favorite breakfast restaurant and you grab enough seats. We'll have an online directory that you can sign up for soon. 
And that'll be a way for those who want to host to indicate your hosting parameters, like where and exactly when and how many seats do you have at your table. And that's a way for everybody else who wants to join your brunch table to sign up. And that'll be a way to just sort of infuse some fresh community and connection into our life together before we get back to regular gatherings the following Sunday on January 15th. Uh, that's all the calendar stuff. Let's talk a little bit uh, about another way that we want to show up in this season, and it has to do with generosity. Uh, from the beginning of South City Church, like a lot of churches uh, around the world, we felt that it's appropriate to honor the nature of this season as we celebrate God's generosity and giving God's self to us with our own uh, extra generosity. Uh, this year, there's a couple of ways that you can do that. And so um, if, you're, if you're looking to like uh, show up financially in this season with some extra generosity, one way is the Tribune Project, which we continue to give our money toward. That's us uh, preparing to renovate our future home just a few blocks north on Lafayette Boulevard at the South End Tribune Printing Press building. We've bought the building and now we've got to renovate it. And uh, as you can to give to that project. That's one way that we can show up during the Christmas season. However, we didn't want to turn our back on some other ways of being generous to needs in our church, our community, and our world at large. And so we've got um, a sort of a pattern we've developed over the last few years. The Christmas offering goes to community, city, and world because we call ourselves a community of grace and peace for our city and the world. So let me briefly let you know where Christmas offering is going to go this year. And then over the next few weeks, we'll tell you a little bit more about each of these things. Um, for community, which is to say our life together right here at South and City Church. Uh, it's pretty basic, but we're going to um, take roughly a third of what's given in the Christmas offering to replenish the general fund. Uh, some of you know that uh, we went through some staff reductions earlier this fall uh, as we try to try to right-size our um, general budget with uh, giving and, and spending. Uh, we were really committed to um, caring for uh, Ryan and Amanda as they transitioned out of their staff roles, and that meant that we continued to pay severance for quite a while, um, even though what we were telling you was that our, our budget wasn't able to sustain that level of staffing. And so uh, we're really gr glad that we were able to do that. That's the right thing for us to do, and we wanted to care in that way. However, it, it did mean that our general fund continued to uh, decrease, and so for the community resource, and we're just going to try to to get that a little bit closer to health and where it should be. Uh, when it comes to needs here in the city of South Bend, a couple of ways that we're going to show up. Uh, there is a team of SBCC members, you may not know this, who since like last winter have been showing up for refugee assistance here in South Bend as people who are refugees from other contexts arrive. And a lot of those refugees have very plain material needs, right? So for example, imagine that you spent your entire life in a part of the world that doesn't have winter. You might need some winter jackets if you're going to live in South Bend, Indiana, as the last few weeks have uh, pointed out. That's one really obvious basic example of a material need that sometimes these refugee families have. And uh, our team that's on the front lines in relationship with some of these families, uh, they're there doing the work with them, but it'd be great to have a fund that they can draw on when material needs pop up. Uh, so some of the city resource will go toward uh, creating that fund. And then also uh, we're going to partner with DTSB. DTSB is an organization that tends to downtown South Bend. Uh, they help South Bend be a place that's vibrant uh, and safe and clean. You might have seen uh, the people in the red shirts or red jackets who uh, roam the streets of downtown South Bend. Uh, that's part of the DTSB effort. Uh, as we get ready to move our life together into the Tribune building, we thought it would be a, an appropriate time to be supportive of partners at DTSB. They need to fund a social outreach ambassador position that will specifically serve unhoused residents in South Bend. Uh, these are our neighbors who uh, are in housing, and we really want to help them do 
that. And so um, we'll take roughly a third of what's given in the Christmas offering, and we'll divide it between these two objectives. And then lastly, when it comes to world, to showing up beyond the city of South Bend, uh, some of you know that we've got friends and partners in Belfast at Redeemer Central Church. Uh, Dave Armstrong, who is a member of the leadership team there, has, has been here on the stage with us. Maybe you've heard him on the podcast. Uh, they're a very kindred community. Uh, they feel called to show up in the world in ways very similar to the way that SBCC shows up in the world. And over the years, our relationship has grown. Uh, in fact, Dave Armstrong from uh, Redeemer was just a part of our group that was over in Israel-Palestine that got home just a couple of days ago, so it was great to be with them. Uh, Redeemer has this beautiful um, physical home in the heart of Belfast in an old church building there. And not only do they obviously use that for their church gatherings, but also it's become a huge resource for asylum seekers who are in Belfast. These are like refugees, people who have come from other places who show up uh, often fairly vulnerable. Uh, families, often a lot of women and children who are there and... Um, the government sort of works on temporary housing for them while they seek asylum, but that doesn't mean that they have a place to live their life during the day. And so uh, their, their church has become a home for these asylum seekers during the week. And uh, the thing is their, their heat is like broken, like done. And uh, that means that they might have to cancel a lot of the space that they provide for these seekers. And so we get to show up uh, with Redeemer to help them provide heat through the winter, both for their church gatherings and for these vulnerable neighbors of theirs who are using that space. We'll take roughly a third of what's given in the Christmas offering and we'll send it to our partners at Redeemer so that they can uh, continue to offer that safe space for people in their community. That's the flyover. Sound good? Yeah, cool. Uh, if you want to get to the Christmas offering, just go online and um, pick the Christmas offering as the fund. That's probably obvious. Uh, if you want to get to the Tribune Project, just pick the Tribune Project. If you want to give to our general life together and help support us in all the regular ways that we pay the bills and provide for staff and kids programming, keep giving to the general fund. And uh, we're enormously grateful for the generosity of this church community. A few weeks ago, I found myself doing something I've never done before. Randomly selecting uh, numbers, penciling them into a little grid, and then eagerly checking the news the next morning to see if the numbers I picked happened to be picked by some ping pong ball machine in Florida. Talk about the Powerball. And don't act like I'm the only one who got pulled in when it pushed toward $2 billion. Where are you? Anybody else? Come on, don't leave me hanging. Yeah, this is group confession. We're all in it together. It's hard not to be enticed by that kind of a jackpot, right? This is not a sermon about the dangers of the lottery or gambling or anything like that. That's maybe a different sermon for another day. It is an observation, though, about what was going on with me, at least. I mean, I don't know about you, but, like, I was filling out the numbers, and you can't help but think about what you would do with that money, right? My aspirations were quite noble, of course. It's going to fund the Tribune Project all the way through, baby. We were going to do the whole thing, no phased approach. We were going to get that building renovated downtown. All the way, right? I thought about some of the other causes that I would support. I thought about friends of mine who I think are doing really brave work in the world and how that work is underfunded. And I thought about how good it would feel to get to come behind the work that they're doing uh, and things that really matter. I thought about the people I love and making life a little more comfortable for all of them. And you know, after all of that, I thought about a couple of things I would do for myself. <laughs> That's a certain kind of hoping that's a certain kind of imagination for the future and putting yourself in a situation that you might want to be in. And I'm not even saying there's anything wrong with that. But what we're going to work out today is that Advent hope 
is not only different from that, it's almost the opposite of, of the kind of hoping I just described. It, it's like the opposite of it. And it happens to coincide with where we are uh, in the creed, which is uh, an ancient document that we've been working through uh, all the way since like back in September, uh, the Apostles' Creed, uh, which is a way of narrating uh, the story of faith that we've inherited. It's a document that stands next to scripture and helps us understand the story that it's telling us and inviting us into. And then where we are in the creed and the way it intersects with Advent, uh, I think you'll see uh, we're being invited to see hope in a way that's fundamentally different from what I just described. And I wanna work that out with you today. Uh, let me remind you where we've been on the creed. We started out with these two big, uh, beautiful, challenging words, we believe. And we've said from the beginning of this series that believe might have less to do with just getting the mental furniture arranged properly in your head and more to do with like the word beloved, which is uh, connected to the root of this. Or uh, like the one scholar Diana Eck observed, she, she says that to say I believe or in the Latin credo is to say I give my heart to this story. And then we is really important there. Because as we've been trying to hear the creed, we've heard not just um, a story of like individual belief, like what do you personally believe or what do I personally believe, but rather are we becoming a family? Are we becoming a community that trusts the story together? Because I know there are days when I have needed some of you to believe on my behalf, when I've had a hard time holding that whole story in my own trust. And maybe there are days when I or somebody else in this community has been able to hold some of that story on your behalf to kind of carry the trust and the hope of that story on days when you don't feel like you have your hands on it anymore. I actually think it's too big of a story for any one person to hold or carry on their own. It was always meant to be a story that's carried together. And so we've been trying to hear the story of we believe. And then it goes on to say, we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Uh, we believe that all that is good and beautiful is here because it's intended. Uh, that there's a divine and loving intent behind all that we see and are a part of here. Uh, we hear in that story um, a sort of ongoing creative generativity, that the creating is still happening and we're part of it. Uh, that the relationship between creator and creation is one of love, which I think is largely the point of this parental language here. It's the kind of love that wants the best, not just for you or for me, but also wants the best in the relationships between us because any good parent wants the kids to take good care of each other. So it's the kind of love that calls us to build a certain kind of world together. And yet that's all still pretty like universal and big, right? And then we observe that all that big universal expansive stuff about God the maker gets dropped down into the particularity of Jesus when the creed says, we believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And uh, I'll resist the temptation to re-preach all of that, but we, we noted there, there's, there's something kind of awkward about the particularity of that until you realize that particularity is really essential. Uh, one way we said it is that if you're looking for water in the wilderness, it doesn't do any good for me to tell you that somewhere in that general direction there's water. Like you, you want to know exactly where to dig uh, to sustain yourself. And the, the virtue of this is that like we get all of, all of the expansiveness and universality of God dropped down into the particularity of Jesus so we know exactly where to look. And, and how to like walk in the current of our relationship with God as Father. So we've been working all this out. Um, we get to Jesus here at this line in the Creed, which is for God to locate God's life and the particularity of a moment in time and a person. And then the next surprise in the Creed is where God locates that particularity. So like just to play with this for a minute, like imagine you're God and you can locate yourself anywhere. You can drop yourself down in anywhere. Now, if you've not done a lot of that imagining, if you're not 
prone to thinking about what you would do if you were God. You might have less of a God complex than me. But uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe swap that out and just say, like, where do you think the good life is? If, you, if like, today in the world, if you had to, like, pull out a map and, like, literally, like, locate somewhere on that map, both in terms of geography and economy and comfort and power and security and experience, if you had to, like, locate somewhere on a map where you'd expect God or where you think the good life would be, well, that goes back to the lottery thing, right? Like, if I'm imagining for myself that the better life is the one where all that financial security is mine and I can take care of everybody else the way that I want to, I've probably said that I'm locating the good life more in that future that I'm hoping for with my little Powerball numbers than the life I'm having right now, right? And you might have your own version of that, that if you pulled out the map and you imagine not just geography, but economy and power and security and everything else, and then you try to figure out where the good life is or where God would locate yourself, I'm not sure many of us would on our own locate God where God located God. The next line, uh, after speaking of Jesus Christ, uh, describes him conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Now, we're going we're gonna to hang out on these two lines of the creed throughout Advent. It seems really fitting uh, that we would just try to understand what this is saying to us uh, about Jesus and about our life with God today. Um, we could do a lot of things with this. Um, we could take some time to point out that for Mary, who's not married at this time, to be found to be pregnant is to be made incredibly vulnerable. This is a time and a place where a woman betrothed to be married who's found to be with child, having not been with her future husband, should be stoned to death according to the law. It's like quite literally, her life is under threat because of this. She's made vulnerable by this. Mary's not um, at the top of the org chart in the society of her day. She's vulnerable in like every imaginable way. And that's where God locates God's self when it gets particular. Not in um, a fortress, not on a high holy mountain, uh, but in the womb of a woman made vulnerable by this pregnancy. Uh, this is one of those things in the story where like, if we're not careful, we gloss right over it and we miss the, the confrontation in it, right? Like we've all heard the Christmas story so much, right? And we've got our um, nativity scenes with the angels and it's easy to kind of get sentimental about it or to repeat all the old tropes. But I think really for people who are trying to figure out how to hope, and where to look for God, I think like, we could let this speak to us in fresh ways right now. Um, because it turns out the story has always been telling us that God's meant to be found in the actual everyday life of our humanity, not someplace else. Uh, Jesus, from what I can tell, is, is the most pointed example of this in Scripture, but he's not the first example of this in Scripture. In fact, if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, to the very, very, very first page of the Bible, and if I had time to take you through ancient Near Eastern comparative sources, I would make the case for you that the surprising thing that Genesis 1 is saying is that the entire universe is a temple for God. That God never needed certain specified high holy mountains for God's presence. That the entire universe is a temple for God. Every inch of the cosmos is a place for God. Every minute of your life is a place for God. Not just the separate, special, sacred, high holy mountain moments. But every minute, every inch of it is a place for God. That's Genesis 1, the first page of scripture. And then you go forward and you pay attention to the characters. And what you see often happening with them is there are people in scripture who find themselves far away from where they wanted to be, and that's where they bump into God. Far away from their ideals, far away from their plans and strategies, 
often sort of in exile from their own best version of their life, that that's where they keep bumping into God. One of those stories uh, comes from uh, the life of a man named Jacob in the book of Genesis. So Jacob grows up in what might be called a dysfunctional family, which might be comforting for all of you who are recovering from Thanksgiving. Very dysfunctional family system, like just some really screwed up stuff with weird, like playing favorites and some sibling conflict. And Jacob has his own issues. And at some point in the story, Jacob essentially steals the blessing that was meant for his older brother. And to steal the blessing is to lay claim to the whole inheritance. I mean, we're talking like he's playing with fire. And then he realizes immediately upon having stolen the blessing from his brother that his brother's going to come after him. So now he's on the run out there in the wilderness. And we pick up the story here in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran, and when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. Now, pause there for a moment. Uh, I don't know if you've ever laid your head on a stone, (laughs) but a lot of us have had our head hit the pillow on certain nights when we feel like we are exiles from our own lives where the things that have happened to us or the things that we have done have led us to a place where we are convinced that we are so far from where we are meant to be and who we are meant to be. We feel all the vulnerability of all these bad choices and all these things that have happened to us, all the frailty, all the insecurity of everything going on around us and your head hits the pillow at night or the stone. (laughs) Like we've all had those nights, right? And at least in my experience, they feel like the farthest possible thing from winning the lottery and securing the good life and meeting God. And then he has this experience. Next slide. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Next slide. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. And Jacob awoke from his sleep and he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. A million miles from his strategies and plans, nowhere near where he intended to be, and that's the place where he bumped into God, into the divine life. Uh, Vulnerable, fragile, and insecure, that's where he bumped into the divine life. There's a a rabbi from roughly a thousand years ago known as Rashi, who speaks sort of uh, in Jacob's voice and summarizes this experience. It's so uh, simple and human. Jacob, uh, it's as if he's saying, I'm running away from my family and I went to sleep. I'm running away from my family, from my origin, from the circumstances of my life. I'm running away from the humanity of my life. I'm running away from where I've come from and what's happened to me and I fell asleep. I was no longer vigilant or awake to my own life. Because that's what happens, right? Like when you want to get away from the details of your actual life, from the vulnerability, the fragility, the insecurity, the humanity of your own life, we find all sorts of ways to fall asleep, to put ourselves to sleep, right? To numb ourselves, distract ourselves, to just run away from the circumstances of our own life. And yet, right out there where he is 
living in the current of his vulnerability and humanity and the bad things that have happened to him and the bad choices that he's made, right out there, even though he didn't know it, God was there. Um, one of the ways of talking about Advent hope, about a story that teaches us to wait for God and to look for God and to welcome Christ, is to remember that you're not going to find God by running away from your humanity. And you're not gonna find God by running away from the humanity of your neighbor. We believe in God Almighty, maker of all things, and all of that dropped into the particularity of Jesus and Jesus showing up in the vulnerability of the womb of a woman who is under the penalty of a death sentence because of that pregnancy, who is um, out on the open road with her betrothed husband not knowing where they will stay. We believe in God Almighty dropped down into that particularity, into as human of a story as you could possibly come up with. Advent's about learning how to hope in ways that aren't about making ourselves secure and invulnerable. Advent's about running headlong into our humanity and vulnerability and finding out that that's where Christ is waiting to meet us, for God to live God's life with us and through us. I've been thinking about um, the ways that so many Christian practices so many things that followers of Jesus have been taught to do are really about owning our humanity rather than running from it. So baptism, for example, baptism being the sort of threshold ritual by which we enter this faith, by which we identify with this faith as followers of Jesus. Baptism is very directly a confrontation with our humanity because we say that when you enter that pool and are buried under that water that you are entering into your death and Christ's death. I mean, that's about as human as it gets. We have a ritual where we are buried under water and brought back up. First of all, to say we are human and we are frail and we identify not just with our death, but his, right? Or what about the Eucharist communion? We'll share that meal together next week. And the Eucharist meal, we gather around this sacred meal and say so that we meet Christ, that we meet the life of God and remembering his death, that everything conspired against him and brought its worst, that he laid his life down, broken body, blood spill. Uh, these, are like, these are right there at the core of our practice. For people who are trying to figure out how to wait for God and look for God and live the good life with God, the things, the, these practices keep saying, like, stop running away from you, humanity, because that's the very place where God is waiting to meet you, for you to know God. Um, uh, Jesus says, um, if you're looking for me, go look for me among the poor, the imprisoned, and the hungry. And you keep bumping into me, you don't even realize it. You bump into me when you bump into poverty and incarceration and hunger. You keep bumping into me when you run into the kind of frail human experiences that so many of us struggle with. Uh, confession is a Christian practice. I don't know anything more humanizing and vulnerable than to name your failure with somebody else. To just say, here's where I ran into the limits of my character or my will or my resolve. Here's where I was not able to live up, I just kind of fell down. Confession is core Christian practice because the Christian story keeps saying, you're not gonna find God by running away from your humanity. You're gonna find God by embracing it. Not just yours, but your neighbors. I was also uh, struck by this learning sitting with friends uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, dear friends of mine who've been members of this uh, community here who have just been through hell for years on end. Um, mostly through uh, really, really difficult medical stuff, uh, mostly for him, the husband. Um, uh, he, years ago, was the recipient of an organ transplant, and 
Uh, if you know anything about that journey, you know that even if you, you know, are lucky enough to get the organ that you need, you continue to live a very vulnerable life in the wake of that. It means, among other things, that he's on immunosuppressant drugs because you don't want your body to reject that organ as a foreign entity in the body. So you got a person on immunosuppressant drugs who's got some other medical liabilities and then a, and then a, and then a pandemic hits. And every day you take drugs that are meant to suppress your immune system. Uh, at one point, some of these complications led to an amputation, so he doesn't have his leg uh, below like the thigh. I could go on and on, but we were sitting there processing where they're at in this long journey, and I'll never forget, um, she said, we are finding God in the unlearning. Spent years, decades learning, learning how to build a life, learning how to make ourselves secure, learning how to make marriage work, how to make our business work, how to make our faith work, and now none of that's working. And now we're finding God in the unlearning. And she didn't say it somber. There was, um, I'm not saying they're happy about everything that's happened, but there was something a little bit like peace or joy when she was able to say, we're actually finding God now in the unlearning and the kind of dismantling that's happened in our lives. I mean, they've been through a very, very human experience of medical catastrophes and um, and yet it's in that very human experience that they feel like they're finding God right now. I also just wanna observe with you all that there's a dark side to our tendency to not find God in our humanity. And it has to do with when we um, chastise or exclude the humanity of others. And human beings, we have all kinds of ways of doing that, don't we? Um, we can draw lines around race or gender or ethnicity, or politics, or whatever. We, we just have all these ways of sort of taking the whole lot of humanity and then drawing a smaller circle around part of humanity and saying that's where the good is, that's where God is, that's where the right is. And then everybody who falls outside these circles that we draw, well, they're somehow less than human. And if we, if we can't see not just their humanity, but God in their humanity there, we set up the, the possibility of all kinds of evil things. We just saw one um, awful example of that in Colorado Springs at Club Q, uh, where members of the LGBTQ community were mowed down by a rifle. I mean, that's just one example of many, many, many that we could tell about the dark side of systems of thought and experience and ways of, of dividing the world that break apart those who are most human from everybody else most in the circle. Uh, perhaps it's no wonder that God, when God arrives in the particularity of the flesh of Jesus, decides to sort of run the opposite direction of us who climb up holy mountains to holy places to exclusive experiences that only certain people have access to to get to the places where we think that we can find God and security and invulnerability only to find out that God was running the other way to meet us in the actuality of human life and flesh and experience. So here's the hack, by the way. Here's the, here's the good news about this. Just take a minute and think about your life and think about the vulnerability that you're most troubled by, the thing that you're most running from, the thing that you most don't wanna deal with, the thing that feels like the most um, inconvenient part of your life. And what if you imagine that rather than getting away from that, that's the place where God is waiting for you? What if you just like played that little hack on your life, the way that you interpret your life, the way that you think about your life, the way that you hope in your life? And so wherever the rub is, wherever the vulnerability is, wherever the weakness is, wherever the breaking point is, wherever the dark shadow is, what if you said, jackpot, now I know where to look for God, right? 
Like that's the place to turn to, 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 put, to put some trust, to, to press in. Like, like for some, it's as simple as saying the one thing that I'm afraid to ask for help about is, is the place I'm going to find God when I finally ask for help. I don't, I don't, like, I don't know what, where it is in your life that you're bumping up against your limits and you've been afraid to ask for help, but the one place where you could ask for help might be the one place where you find God. And you've been on the hunt for the good life, the secure life, even the divine life by ignoring that thing instead of turning toward that thing. And it might be that raising your hand and asking for help is finally going to be the way that you discover the life of God waiting to meet you in that. Christ waiting to encounter you in that. The, the arrival of God that Advent season teaches us to look for is like waiting for you there. Some of us, uh, there's like family conflict and it's just been so much easier to pretend it's not happening, to not name it, to not address it, to not deal with it, to not work through it. Um, because to turn toward that makes you feel a little scared, right? A little vulnerable. Like to name the hard thing going on between you and someone you love to name the thing that's not working between you and one of your people, um, that could be a terrifying thing to do. And so, yeah, of course, we find every possible way to ignore that and to build the illusions of security that make it feel like that's not a problem going on for us. But what if you said, no, wait, what if that's actually like X marks the spot? That's the place I'm going to turn to to look for God. So I'm going to show up and have the brave conversation. I'm going to show up and say the hard thing. And it may not go smoothly. It may get bumpy. But I won't let those bumps on the road tell me that that's not where God is. Because this whole story is about waiting and welcoming and discovering God in the particular experience of vulnerable humanity. There's even a, a passage in 1 Corinthians that uh, can sound almost like Paul's just speaking in a riddle because it's so kind of back and forth in the way he's talking. But Paul's writing to followers of Jesus and he's trying to help them understand that, that like, you've been hardwired by the world in a way that, that's going to make it kind of hard for you to catch Christ. But you, you got to like invert the way that you think about everything if you're going to find Christ and if you're going to live your life with Christ. And the way he says it is this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It's because of him that you're in Christ Jesus who's become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, where's Paul get that from? Where, like, where does he get off saying that? I think it's because he knows the Jesus story inside and out and he keeps discovering whether it's the vulnerability of, of Mary's womb, of God arriving in that particularity or the vulnerability of Jesus' death. He keeps discovering that if, if you're looking for God through security and invulnerability, you're not gonna find God. But if you realize God never needed security and invulnerability to show up, you're gonna look back at the actual vulnerable reality of your life and discover God there. But it's gonna take a total conversion of your thinking because you and I have lived in a whole world that keeps like beckoning us to build fortresses and security for ourselves as if that's where the good life is, as if that's where God is. And then we wonder why we keep looking for the elusive God and we feel like we can't find him. Uh, we're going to work on this over the next few weeks. I'm really excited about um, a practice and some of the teachers that are going to uh, help us with this. Uh, next week, we'll uh, come to the Eucharist table and uh, we'll allow that meal to remind us of the very nature of the God that we are looking for this Advent season on the hunt. 
Uh, the following week, uh, really excited to have uh, a new friend, uh, and I, th I think she'll become a friend of Southland City Church. Her name is Mallory Wyckoff. Uh, Mallory's coming up from Florida. Mallory is a spiritual director uh, and sort of a religion scholar. She also uh, works for a group called Preemptive Love that helps churches uh, show up in places in the world where people really need help. Uh, Mallory's written a book called God Is, and it's a, it's a beautiful book, and, and I would say it's sort of somebody writing about the dismantling and rebuilding of their faith um, with fresh pictures of, of God. And she's going to come share, uh, in particular, um, what do you do with a story that locates God and the experience of, like, conception and childbirth? Uh, like, can we kind of draw that out a little bit? So Mallory's going to be here and talk to us about that. Uh, then the following week, Daniel Benura, who's a member of our community here. Uh, Daniel is a Palestinian uh, Christian who's uh, from Palestine, literally from Bethlehem. And um, one thing Daniel can do for us is help us sort of you know, take those kind of like Americanized, westernized, um, uh, sort of rose-colored glasses off of the Christmas story and get back to the humanity of the Christmas story as a thing that happened in time and place and flesh in complicated uh, circumstances and experience. Daniel's going to speak to us about that. And all of that will lead us on our way to Christmas Eve. Uh, very excited about it. Uh, but before we wrap this up, um, maybe one more way of, of trying to put... Uh, this Advent hope in front of us and the other kind of looking for God that it confronts. And this comes from an experience that a number of us just had. Uh, a group of South and City Church people were over in the land that some call Israel and some call Palestine. And we just got back this past week. And uh, we were there uh, primarily not to see the holy sites, um, but more uh, as our guides uh, said, um, not just to walk where Jesus walked, but to walk where Jesus would walk today and to walk uh, in the way that he would walk today. Um, paying attention to the hurt and division and inequities that shape uh, that land and the people there today. And um, sitting with stories of both uh, violence and creativity and beauty and hope and um, allowing ourselves to get cracked open a little bit by everything that's happening there. So we went over there to learn, uh, but we also visited some of the holy sites because I mean, you should at least take that in while you're there. And I'm, I'm always intrigued. I've done this trip a number of times now, and I'm always intrigued to see how people will experience the holy sites. Because, you know, you've got places like Jerusalem where the whole world sort of converges, where so many hopes are fixed, where there's these sort of historical stories and these spiritual feelings that somehow you're at the epicenter of the divine life there. And so I'm always kind of curious to see how people will experience that. One of the high holy sites in Jerusalem is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. I'll put the picture on the screen. Uh, so this is in the old city of Jerusalem. Um, it's one of at least two contested sites that purport to be uh, the location of Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, the tomb and the place that he came out of that tomb. Sepulchre also happens to purport to be the place of the crucifixion uh, in kind of a different part of the same building there. So this is an ancient, ancient church. Uh, the picture that you're seeing is the, the center of the church. There's a large dome. And then there's a smaller little building inside the church that you're looking at directly there. And that building houses the actual tomb site. And so you're there at the center of the center of the center of Christian faith in terms of these events for people. And I mean, it's sort of swarming with pilgrims from all over the world there. And you'll see all kinds of different expressions of prayer and seeking and devotion. Um, some of them perhaps feel more foreign than others to American or Western Christians. Uh, you'll see, for example, there's a, a, a large piece of stone on the ground 
uh, that's thought to be the stone upon which Jesus' body was laid for its embalming. And it's not uncommon to see pilgrims bring items of clothing, other material there that they really want to, um, you know, kind of rub on that stone. And, and you can interpret that uh, on a wide range of, from cynical perspectives to really beautiful ones. You can see it, I think, as a, uh, an act of devotion and faith and love and affection uh, for Christ and for the story that played out there. Um, you can also see it as a, a kind of strange behavior, as if there's somehow more of God on that stone than there is anywhere else. And I'm always curious to watch uh, the friends that I travel with as they take all this in for the first time. And I wasn't surprised to discover that a lot of our group, I think, was a little bit unsettled by what happens here at this holy place. Um, here, you're, you're kind of looking at, there's a large line of people who are waiting to actually enter into that smaller structure where the tomb is. And if you think that people get testy at the grocery store line when they think you cut, Imagine like hundreds or thousands of people who have flown in from all over the world to get to God. And they think you're cutting in line, woo! There is what might be described as some unchristian behavior happening uh, in this sort of like mass throng of people. They're all kind of scrambling to get their way into this holy site. And you watch it and you think like, again, there are multiple interpretations of this. And I think there's also a lens that sees it as a really beautiful um, the energy of devotion and love. So I'm not trying to rule that out. Simultaneously, you kind of sit back and you think like, guys, we, we did it again. Dang it. The whole story is about like, you don't have to get to the holy mountain. You don't, you don't, you don't have to get to the special place. God is not lurking, hidden and elusive at the top of the ascent. God is everywhere waiting to meet us in the humanity of our everyday lives. And it's there in Genesis 1 and it's there in Jacob on the run and it's there in Jesus, born of a virgin Mary, over and over again. Stop fighting to get to the holy mountain. God's actually waiting for you in, in the humanity and vulnerability of your actual life. And there we are scrambling, fighting to get there. And then after sort of making our way around that scene, we uh, had a, a really good guide who wanted to show us something that she thought was really special. That's this kind of this tucked away alcove that you can't see in the picture that's behind uh, that part of the, the tomb edifice there. And we find ourselves in this little carved out alcove in front of a very, very, very ancient shrine. And while we're in there, this little scuffle happens, and I'm trying to make sense of what's going on. And so what, what I observe is that a guy who's not a member of our group, a very large man, is, is actually kind of like aggressively verbally assaulting one of the members of our group. And I don't know how to take this in, and our tour guide all of a sudden kind of gets into it with this very large man. They're all speaking different languages. I don't understand any of it. And then, and then our sort of trip guide uh, sort of saw all this going on, and our trip guide is very savvy. He's... He's like born and raised in this part of the world. He knows things inside and out. And he, he kind of gets in the guy's face and he challenges him a little bit. And what I found out later that he said was don't disrespect God's holy people in a holy place. Uh, apparently the reason this guy was upset was that this member of our group just had a beverage with him. Guys, it's stone that's been there for like a thousand years. I'm pretty sure like it's not in danger of, of being threatened by a beverage. But there we go again, right? This, this guy um, seems so fixated on, on honoring the holy place that that very fixation on honoring the holy place caused him to dishonor a holy person and to come at her with um, severe disrespect. And at first I really want to judge that guy and then I think, oh, that's all of us, right? Like we keep hoping and thinking that we can 
build holy shrines and holy mountains. And I'm, I'm not against building beautiful sanctuaries and temples. I'm not against making pilgrimages to sacred places. I'm not talking about that being all wrong, but I'm talking about that angst inside that says that like, we don't have enough of God in our everyday human lives. We don't have as much of God when we are vulnerable and human. We don't have enough of God in the sort of everyday experience of being human. So we've got to somehow transcend our humanity to get to God rather than realize the whole story is about God descending into our humanity to meet us there in the particulars of our lives and experiences. So if we're going to look for God this Advent season, let's light our candles for sure. And let's like sing beautiful Advent songs and hear scriptural stories. Let's do all those things, but let's remember what they were always pointing toward, which is back to our actual lives. Um, that's where we're going to go these next uh, few weeks together this Advent season. There is a, uh, a prayer um, that I was reminded of written by uh, Father Thomas Keating. I was reminded of it because I was part of a, a Zoom group with uh, Mark Waltz, who's a member of our community here, and he led us in this prayer, and it, it intersected with uh, this big idea in a way that's really been working on me. And so I wanted to share this with us um, as a way of sort of bringing today to a close and then setting us forward into the season of Advent. It's sometimes simply called the welcome prayer. It's a prayer about not running from the vulnerability of our lives, but embracing them, because to embrace your life is actually to set yourself up to meet God. And to run from your life is probably to make it a little bit harder to find the God who is waiting to meet you and me there. So I thought I would um, share this, this sort of meditation or prayer with you before I said grace and peace to you today and before we move uh, further into this season on our way to Christmas. Uh, if you're able, will you stand to your feet? Before I uh, share this with you, just a reminder Nothing wrong with the lottery, and if you win, you can make your checks out to South Bend City Church. <laughs> Tripping project. Um, here, let me offer this meditation before I say grace and peace to you today. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I welcome everything that comes to me today because I know it's for my healing. I welcome all thoughts, feelings, emotions, persons, situations, and conditions. I let go of my desire for power and control. I let go of my desire for affection, esteem, approval, and pleasure. I let go of my desire for survival and security. I let go of my desire to change any situation, condition, person, or myself. I open to the love and presence of God and God's action within. Amen. And may grace and peace be with you. Amen. Love you all. See you next week.